0: Hello and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. For Monday, May 22nd, we're here recording on the afternoon of Sunday, May 21st. And it's really, it's the heart of stage racing season. It's a great time of year. We've been able to watch both the Vuelta a Burgos and the Giro d'Italia this weekend. Lots to talk about today. And I can't wait to get into it. As ever... I, I can't wait for my weekly conversation, my Sunday conversation with none other than bike racing analyst extraordinaire Cosmo Catalano. Cosmo, how are you? I am well, Dane. I'm sitting in a very tiny rocking chair that my great-grandmother had custom made for her. That's just awesome color for the podcast. I'm so glad that you shared yeah. that with us. Yeah, uh, where are you? I, I'm in my parents' house in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Amazing. Uh, which, when you shared that information with me earlier i looked this up it's just a beautiful (laughs) idyllic historic town in western massachusetts really really cool uh i i'm also joined this week for the second week in a row what a treat abby mickey welcome back abby mickey host of the wheel talk podcast former professional bike racer now amazing podcast host herself and occasionally she graces us with her presence on this show abby how's it going
1: good i'm also in my parents house so that's funny um which is also in a historic town
0: uh that's great news uh yeah i don't think you're in your parents house kit but you're in a very historic place live yeah, from edinburgh. well not live because <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's more
1: history where kit is than all of us yeah
0: okay well from edinburgh <laughs> cycling journalist kit nicholson welcome to the podcast kit how are you
2: i'm right thank you thanks for having me back
0: it, it, it's great to have you back so we have bike races in both Spain and Italy that are going to take most of our attention today. I think we should start with the Vuelta a Burgos because it's already over and I wish there were more to talk about, but it was kind of another dominant performance by a team that keeps doing that over and over again. I don't think there's really that much effort required to condense what's going on uh, in this race. Cosmo, what happened at the Vuelta Burgos?
3: We have to savor the variety of different dominances we were, yeah, uh, we were subjected to. <laughs> Whereas uh, there was a sprint on stage one, won convincingly by, um, by Lorena Vivas. Uh, there was a crosswind day on stage two where SD works put the field to ribbons. And then Lorena Wiebes briefly won the sprint, and then they decided she had done something wrong, although I don't think anyone specified what that was. Uh, and so Demi Valering won that stage. Wiebes won another stage, catching the break in the last 10 meters of the stage, which was amazing to watch. Uh, and then uh, Demi Vollering kind of took everyone to school on a, a final uphill climb. We saw a spirited competition for the, the lower steps of the podium. Um, but yeah, just really start to finish all Day
0: works all the time. Uh, for me, this race was sort of an example of what happens when Demi Vollering has a you know a clear shot at a stage race win without any sort of, uh, you know, nature break attack controversy shenanigans or somebody else from her own team getting the win. She's that much better than everybody else. It's a, it's a two-minute-plus gap to the rest of the peloton, minus Anamie Uh And at this race, I think we really got to see what happens when she has a clear shot at a field that isn't quite as good as it was at the La Vuelta Femenina uh, in, in, a, in a wonderful part of Spain. Uh, for the wine fans, very close to the Ribeiro de Duero wine region, by the way. Yeah, Abby's shaking her head, but she agreed to come <laughs> on to the podcast so she can deal with my history nerds. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Demi Vollering, this is, this is what happens when she has a clear shot. And I think it's just another example of her being the clear best rider in the world right now and probably the favorite for really anything she sets her mind to at the moment.
1: I went back and looked at her results for the season, and she has won 11 of the 20 races that she's participated in. But in those 20 races, she's only finished outside of the top 10 four times. And her worst result all season was stage, I think it was stage one or three of Burgos, where she finished 22nd. Hmm. This is just like crazy.
0: It's it's such an... uh a telling example of how good she is across the board, her, her variety of talents, because a, there are a lot of sort of GC dominant riders on the men's side. This is especially true five years ago, where they would dominate on the days they dominate, and then they would relax, take it easy. And yeah, that, that I guess the, the stages where she hasn't finished that highly, partially because she's letting a teammate uh, crush everybody. She generally is up there no matter what the profile is.
3: Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to point out is she did a ton of work for, for Vibus in some of these intermediate stages, like, or these sprint stages. She was, you know, the last person who did a huge pull to get uh, Vebus to catch that break on stage three. She was leading out, the, the, st- the finish on stage two, where, where there was the the bad relegation, um, there was a little narrow section of smooth, kind of, I don't know if it was concrete or if it was uh, rock slabs, but there was a narrow, smooth section. And she did all the work kind of posting up at the front of that and just hammering it and forcing everyone who wasn't Lorena Vivas to kind of come around on some cobblestones. She, I mean, it's not like she's been sitting back and waiting for the GC days. She's been super active, trying to get the, the pack to work together, doing turns at the front. It's just incredible to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredible to watch now, but I, there is a little bit of... Um, we're... We're like sitting on a rope right now on whether or not this is going to get boring. <laughs> I think like right now she's so fresh in the sport. This is her fifth year in the world to her, her third year on SC works. Like she's, she's really fresh still to the sport. And it's not like the same feeling as when Van Vluten is dominant. But I, I do think that like someone needs to challenge her soon. Otherwise it's going to get a little bit tiring. And I think we're going to see that coming up, especially at the Tour de France Femme. But there's a lot going on in the Peloton this year that is really fueling SD Works dominance. Like we have Trek with a super reduced team that is only now kind of building back into the season with riders coming back from injury and riders coming back from illness and stuff. Um, and like Shirin Van Enroy had an incre- incredible race. She finished second overall after a really strong performance on the final stage, but she's not really a climber. So it was cool to see her hang on to Demi as long as she could and still finish the day really strong. And I think like Trek is, is in the process of rebuilding and didn't had they had their team at full strength in the beginning of the year, they would have definitely challenged SD Works and we, it wouldn't have been as dominant an SD Works Classics campaign. But we had, like, yeah, Movistar in a weird position where they do have Classics riders, but like a couple of them were out. Emma Norzgaard was out with a broken collarbone. Um, we have Anami van not doing as well as she has, or the Peloton rising to meet her. As I, uh, spoke with Emma a couple uh, week ago or so on the wheel talk podcast, we've just got a couple teams that are so, so close to being able to compete. And I think that there's just this really interesting situation where SC works is just very, very lucky right now. And I, I don't think it's, that they are that much better than everyone else. They've always been this good. And Danny Stam is just like unreal good at picking riders to sign for this team and he always has been. But there were a couple years there where Trek Segafredo was really challenging SC Works to be the best team in the peloton. They won the world tour rankings one year as well. But it's just like this year has been a weird year for the peloton. But it's been not a weird year for SD Works, and because of that, it just seems like we have this incredibly strong team that is unbeatable. But they are un- they are beatable. I feel like if you look at the two riders that dominated Burgos between Volring and Weebus, because they won all the stages between the two of them, Weebus is is unbeatable. Like she cannot be beat. It, unless she's relegated <laughs> like she is so so good at sprinting and the only rider who could really challenge her last year was Elisa Balsamo who's who's really not got the kick that she had before this year she had she was so impressive last year and this year she's just not got that extra 2% to be able to beat Webus especially on stage 1 you saw like she was she just can't sprint as fast as we and i think she has the ability to do it but just she's not so far this season we haven't seen it from her and there's no one else in the peloton who can compete with that sprint except cool and they just really are not going to take her to any races unless she's going to win she's that's just how dsm like does it and so there i don't see Volering as being as unbeatable i guess because i think that in my mind there's like 10 riders that are just like, that just need like 2%. And then it's going to be just like an epic mountain battle to see who wins the Tour de France Femme of Zwift.
0: And the, the focus on the July racing is a relatively new phenomenon over the past decade or so. So it, it is tough to say whether.
1: Oh, over the last 12 months. Over, yeah. yeah. That's,
0: that's <laughs> uh, it's tough to say therefore, whether the rest of the Peloton just hasn't been up to speed, I mean, literally, uh, because they're waiting to get, you know, for, to peak at that time of year. So I think it, that is, there is some suspense there. Uh, you, you pointed out Trek Secafredo as, as sort of a major challenger. And I do think we've seen both, and, and honestly, the past month, we've seen kind of both of the up and comer potential challengers on the climbs, G- uh, Guy Rialini and Shirin Vananroy, who are both very, very young. I mean, as young as really. So many of the riders at the top right now are, they are, even for that, they're very young. uh, And I think there is some hope there as they continue to get better. Yes, they were way behind, uh, you know, SD works in these races, but still they are up and coming and you would think they're only going to get better.
1: Yeah. I think it's also worth pointing out that like, for example, if you look at this race in particular, You've got riders like Ashley Mampasio, who will definitely be able to compete on climbs coming up. But her and Demi took a completely different approach to this race. This was Ashley's first World Tour race back after liege bastogne liege She won Durango-Durango, uh, the the midweek um, Pro Tour or whatever the one-step-down races are ranked. She won that race, so she's she's on good form, but she's definitely at the base of her peak going into the the July racing season and the Giro, I would assume that she's racing the Giro based on how she's building. And then you've got Demi who just raced all the Ardennes. She raced well the Vuelta Femenina. She raced at Julia and Burgos. And now she's taking time away from racing to refocus. So you've got like riders like Ashley who are looking and sure in honestly who are looking to peak later and are kind of building up to that and riders like Demi who's just ending her first peak of the season and so that's in that sense this race was kind of a not a great indication of what the battles are going to be to come because it's two completely different approaches to this race in particular and like we saw the GC competition was reduced to like seven kilometers on the final stage
3: there was a little action in the that um, crosswind stage and the the people who finished second and third today were both on uae adq uh and didn't really seem to work together at all um and still finished pretty well and i don't think they would have been able to challenge vollering but it would have been a lot more interesting if they hadn't lost three minutes uh basically i i I can't remember a specific moment at which they were all dropped from the from those from the, on that, that crosswind day, but I feel like uh, there are kind of a lot of teams in that same position where they have talent, they have strong riders, and they just don't seem to be kind of as dialed and as focused on working together as a S. Dayworks or a Trek. And I'm wondering if just better organization might help. You know, uh, someone like Sylvia Persico perform a little better in in, in overall uh, standings.
1: Yeah. UAE had a shocker of a race because the stage two, the day that there were crosswinds, they all lost a ton of time. And Sylvia Persico climbed super well on the fourth stage. Erica McNaldi had probably one of the best performances that she's had all year and, and including last year. Um, But the team is like still relatively new. And I think that management is having a hard time harnessing that the the talent that they have on the team because they do have some incredibly strong riders but they they're so bad at working as a unit that you don't even really think about them when it comes to teams that are going to be able to compete against sc works and it sucks because persico is incredibly talented like she would have finished second overall if they had just played their cards a little bit better and that's kind of a bummer to see i don't know i i She's signed through 2025. Yeah, she signed through 2025 with UAE. So she's still got, you know, two and a half more seasons with them. And you'd think that there are other teams that are super interested in signing her. Um, she could do really well on other teams, but it'll be interesting to see if that team can figure out how to support her. And F- FDJ Suez also just had a horrific day on stage two and lost a ton of time. And they, they still didn't have much in the way of general classification competition. Cecily Utrecht-Ludwig returned to the Peloton for the first time since the Ardennes, and she didn't have that great of a race. She she got dropped from that like group fighting for second and third on the day on the final stage. Um, So she's not climbing as well as we saw her last year. But again, same as Ashley, she's building into the tour and she's targeting like the tour and the tour of Scandinavia that are later in the season. So she's not going to be on her best form yet, or that would be way too early.
0: Uh, A rider who surprised me at this race was the, specifically because of her climbing was Chloe Dygert. Uh, she has done a I mean a really impressive job of kind of showing off that yes she has all that power that we know she has she barely ever races in the you know top level races in Europe and part of that's because of all the injuries but I was still very surprised at how well she was climbing in this race the fact that she was able to at the end of the day finish fourth overall she was ninth on that final stage to Laguna Stanela and Am I, should I be surprised, Abby? I mean, this this seems like something that we haven't seen her do that much before at this level in the past.
1: I, you know, I don't think you should be surprised given the climb itself was 11K long, but only seven, per, only seven kilometers of it was actually raced. And it's not a super steep climb. So her ability to put down just ridiculous power on a climb like this, it totally makes sense. If it had been a bit steeper, if she was racing at Plage de Belfi, I would agree with you. I'd be shocked to see her finish ninth. But I think for a climb like this, it's not that surprising to see her finish super well. It's like, if you think about the fact that this is only her second European stage race in her life. When she started stage one, it was only her fifth race day in two years. And she was able to finish fourth overall. That is insane like that is so impressive she has basically no ability in the peloton at all she's coming from the us which is basically you know pelotons of 60 people that ride on massive roads so it's not even comparable to what she's experiencing right now in europe and she's not raced with this team that she's been on since 2021 at all since she signed with the team. And to be able to come into a race like Burgos, granted, it, it doesn't have the biggest competition when it comes to the gen- general classification. But this kind of performance has me really curious about how she's going to perform at the Tour de France Femme of x because you have to imagine that Canyon Sram is looking at how she's been able to perform this race. I mean, finishing third, second slash third, and ninth on three stages of this race and fourth overall, like they, they for sure are taking her to the tour. I I would be absolutely shocked if they didn't take it. There would have to be some kind of internal conflict for them to not take her to the tour because she's so close to winning a stage. Like if she can just put her, if she can use her power a little bit better then it will be, she could run, she could run away with stage wins. Like, but she, she just needs to learn how to race a bike in Europe a little bit, but Even without any knowledge about how to race a bike in Europe, she got fourth overall at a world tour stage race, and that is bonkers. I, like, cannot even explain to you how crazy that
3: is. It's it's mind-blowing. She's, like, riding at, like, 60% of what she could be doing because she's doing it so badly <laughs> like she's doing these like <laughs> 700 meter sprints where she's all over the road she almost like took out volering on stage one she's just like it's just she's just like oh there's some space I'm gonna pedal really hard and she's finishing top three in sprints on the Crosswinds Day, she was sitting at the back of the field as riders in front of her got tailed off and she just stood up and rode around them and got back to the group and I was like how, you that isn't supposed to be possible like you're that crosswinds are to punish you for riding like that and it just does not matter to her i almost feel like she's she's doing like intervals or, or fartlek training or something where she's like oh there's another gap i better go close it and like then another gap forms. So, oh, i she better reminds go close me it of
1: evie stevens because like <laughs> evie stevens whenever you were in the peloton with her if you if you looked to your side and you saw evie stevens like you were about to get dropped <laughs> but she would then go on to win the race and that's always how it happened. <laughs> like. But Chloe is just... Like, what is it about Americans? Like They just can't ride in a Peloton well, to save their our lives. Our roads are too are wide. So yeah, wide roads. Strong. Yeah, we, we don't have to worry about yeah. that. Yeah, she's... um, As much as I am conflicted to say it, she is incredibly impressive on the bike.
0: Uh, with that, let's jump over to the Giro. Where, as of recording time on Sunday afternoon... Well, Cosmo, what what is going on at the Giro as of recording time on Sunday?
3: There's a different guy in pink. Uh, everything else is kind of the same.
0: Oh <laughs> um, man, <laughs>
3: it's it's been it's been a very chill couple of days. You know, we've had a lot of breakaway finishes. We had two breakaway finishes, one by the same person. We've had a real solid cast of characters. Probably five or six guys putting on an amazing bike race, and everyone else just doing as little as possible. Which. Maybe sounds like a slight, but it's been really hard. It's been horrible weather. It's been cold. There haven't been, according to the riders, there haven't been a ton of opportunities to take time, a lot of headwinds, kind of on uphill finishes. Um, you know, Thomas inherited the jersey uh, when, when Evan, Evan the Pool dropped out, and he kind of handed it off to Bruno MRI um, to give his team a little breather. Uh, but it's been a it's been a cold race. Like, it's... It's, it's almost been like a series of classics, um, the, which, you know, cool finishes, but not, yeah, the GC battle has been really,
0: really quiet. Yeah, the biggest things that have happened in the GC so far in this race have been, one, Remco Evanapol leaving the race with COVID, and then Teo Gegenhardt leaving the race because he broke his hip in a crash uh, and left that for that reason. So other than that, there really haven't been that many attacks. There hasn't been that much action, honestly. I think the, the weather has, been a, has played a big role. We saw a stage shortened by the weather, potentially what would have been maybe the biggest GC stage uh, in the second week uh, into Switzerland. They had to shorten that stage. But it's, it's been very entertaining uh, in the breakaway. The, the, the stage battles have been great. But yeah, I, I think, Cosmo, you were already saying last week, it, you, were, you were not that entertained <laughs> by the GC battle. And I have to say, this week, I felt very similarly.
2: I would say that the most interesting GC story for me has been Andreas Legnitsund, who, of course, wore the pink jersey for a few days, but he's also just sticking with the, the main contenders, which is, I I mean, I would be surprised if he lands the top five, but I would also not be all that surprised because he is really managing to, you know, hang around with Roglic and, you know, when Pino and co got dropped uh, by two seconds today um he he was very much in the wheels where he needed to be if he's going to be you know staying where he is in the top ten um but yeah, also I mean on the drama, which has been potentially limited, and I think yeah I, I, um it, it has obviously been an incredibly miserable race, and it this looks like a a matter of survival for so many of them um what I keep finding myself thinking is back to last year's Giro when we had, I don't know, two or three, three or four short, fast stages, quite often with a circuit finish that were thrillers. And yeah, the GC battle wasn't necessarily electric, but I remember Bora Hansgrohe really putting the hammer down on one of those short stages. And it's when we really were made to think, oh, hang on, maybe they could do something here. And that was a real innovative move from the Giro to have those great Short stages, Thomas De won one of those. That was a particularly great day. Um, but this year it's just, and yeah, the weather has played a major role, but it's just been a bit meh. I don't know. It's great to see Healy and Toms and Derek G uh, playing these central roles, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it feels like week four to me.
1: <laughs> I I just can't agree with you guys. Like I have loved this Giro and Granted, I am just—I there are not words to describe how gutted I am about Teo, because yeah. I truly believe that he was going to win this Giro. He has not looked this good since he won the Giro in 2020, and he's arguably better this year, stronger than he was that year. So, as our colleague Kate said, I was looking forward to him winning a Giro without an asterisk next to it, um, kind of proving that he is the GC rider that I think the UK has always, um, forced him into being, but he, yeah, I, am I'm gutted about Teo. Um, but I still think it's been a really exciting race because it's not all about the GC. And I feel like for this race, we've, we're going to walk out of this race with a dozen riders on our radar that weren't before the race. And I think that that, like this Derek G guy, (laughs) I'm obsessed (laughs) this is his first year in the world tour and he has absolutely dominated the breakaways. Like he's been so consistent. It is incredible how consistent he's been. And he's like, how has he, he's like so close to winning a stage. He's one different, one different bike throw maybe one relegation away from winning stage like he's so close and i just think that i'm so excited to watch how he does in the future and there's other riders like nico dens has been super exciting him winning two stages is a huge deal i think that this race is not yeah maybe the gc battle so far has been pretty boring um or i guess just disappointing and that we lost two of the biggest gc contenders not even like for racing they didn't drop out of the gc because of a actual racing thing it was like a avoidable crash and um arguably a avoidable covid so it's not you know that that's a bummer but i i don't i find this race exciting because of how the riders are tackling it day to day. And I wanna keep tuning in day to day because every single day has been super exciting. And I think the GC is going to heat up in the final weeks, like in the final week, the the way that the race is built, it was always going to be a boring GC battle in the first two weeks. The only GC day we had was the day that was shortened because of the weather, the one that was shortened to like 74K. That would have been a GC battle for sure. But, you know, it's Italy in May. You kind of got to figure that there's going to be weather involved in the race. And so I feel like, yeah, I I just don't agree. I don't agree with your takes.
0: (laughs) I I think we should. There are so many things to talk about with these breakaway battles. I think there are some stages that we can break down a little bit more closely to, particularly today's stage, Sunday's stage, as we are recording this. Uh, And let's return to the GC conversation as we look ahead, because I think that's where the, uh, yeah, as you said, Abby, it was always going to be a big final week. I, I think I was hoping a little bit more for some action on, on week two. I mean, we had this sort of mini Lombardia, and particularly, yeah, the, the stage that got shortened, we might have gotten, the weather may have robbed us of a, of a bigger battle because there would have been more climbing in the stage uh, to, to Switzerland. So let's come back to the GC battle. Uh, just to give to set the scene, though, as, as we head into the second rest day here, uh, as you said, Cosmo, Garen Thomas gave up the jersey to Bruno Armorai who leads by a minute and eight seconds over Thomas. Uh, and then there's a there's a couple of riders really close together. Primoz Rogo is just two seconds back from Thomas, and then Joao Almeida, and then, yeah, Andreas Lechtensund doing his best to hold on. And that's where we are heading into the second rest day. We'll come back to that situation as we look ahead to the final week. But let's break down some of these breakaway battles. Uh, first of all, I wanted to point out, Abby, you, you were talking about how impressive Derek G has been uh, consistently getting into the breakaway. And I, I just kind of wanted to continue on that topic because it's, it's something that is. I, I don't know how much is talked about how hard it is to get into a breakaway on so many days in a row, or you know, just in general, how many so many days in a race. It is such a crapshoot. I mean, you 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 battle in the in the first hour trying to get into that move, and so often you get a big group of great riders who get off the front and it doesn't go. And so if you're able to get into the breakaway that that does go the distance multiple times, it's just really impressive. So it's it's been Derek G, it's been Ben Healy, it's been Tom is continually. Been up there over and over again. It's really impressive. It's it's so hard to do that when it's so when it's so much of a crapshoot. It's so hard to do that and be up there every day. Nico Denz. Uh, so you know, hats off to all those guys for continuously being able to contend in those races, even if they don't end up winning the stage. It's just getting that uh, early break, which we don't often see because maybe it's not televised in some races or because it's early as hell if you're in the United States. It, it's just really impressive to to see that uh, that sort of uh, performance over and over again.
1: Yeah, like, I just want to point out, like, Derek G, this 25-year-old Canadian, first year racing in the World Tour, he was on Israel Cycling Academy last year, so the development part of the Israel Premier Tech team. He's been in the Breakaway four times this race, and every single time, the Breakaway has succeeded. So, it's his first year in the World Tour, and he has second-second, fourth-second at the Giro. And that is so cool and it's not just the Canadian in me that's excited well maybe it is but it's it's just like really exciting to see like I think before this I mean the Canadian that everyone knows right is Mike Woods but I see us like walking out of this zero next week a week from today and being like that Derek Derek G guy like
2: (laughs) what's a real shame for him though is that now he's a marked man even though he hasn't won anything yet so if he gets into a break next week Everyone's going to be watching him, and he's going to have way more competition. And it's the same with Fred Wright at the things like the Tour de France. Like if they get into a breakaway, oh, hang on, we can't let him go. But they haven't actually won something. They haven't won one of those big events yet. So I'm really itching for him to get that win as soon as possible. Because um, I mean, he, obviously he deserves it. It's, uh, it. I know you can't give them an honourable win. And if he'd, if as some people were saying, uh, when Nico Dem slapped him in the face in a metaphorical. Piece of gold for journalists, which I managed to restrain myself from using. Um, but the, the yeah, if he'd been handed that as a relegation from being, you know, accosted on the finish line, he would have hated that probably. He wouldn't have. I mean, maybe he wouldn't. I don't know. I'm not a professional cyclist. I can't say. But to be, but when he he was in a sprint and it was a well contested sprint, Nico Denz didn't do anything wrong. He just um, maybe uh, celebrated a little early. He wouldn't, that wouldn't have been what he wanted, but I, I so want him, I so wanted G to win that. Obviously if Tom's wasn't going to, but you know, having been caught, yeah, it's uh, it, it's agonizing to watch him and to watch him go from elation in his first, second place to devastation in his third. Yeah, it's hard.
0: Uh, I want to talk about Tlalpino first before we break down specifically today's stage, because there was a lot of action in the finale today, that we, which was just really entertaining. Uh. I root for Thibaut Pino. I mean, I I am rooting for him at this Giro. In his final season, I'd like to see him have some success. Uh, I wasn't... By by the end of the stage, uh, we're talking here about the the shortened Stage 13, where Pino was in the breakaway. He was up the road with a handful of other riders and then got clear. And it was Pino and uh, Cepeda from EF and Rubio from Movistar who ended up contesting the stage. Uh, By the end of that day, although I was, I am rooting for Pino to maybe have a stage win, I can't say I was really rooting for him at the end of that day. Um, He was very, if you didn't watch, uh, he, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody complain and shout at his breakaway companions more than I saw Thibaut Pino do that on stage 13 because he didn't feel like, and they weren't, he didn't feel like his companions were working as much as him. One of the reasons that they weren't doing that is because he was working, you might say, too much. He was attacking Uh, them a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't I, I think it's a completely fair and reasonable thing to use your social abilities to influence others to ride. If you want to shout at them as part of your tactics to make them ride more, then more you know, more power to you. That's what makes cycling great. But what also makes cycling great is that you can just sit on and let somebody else wear themselves out. And I I kind of felt like it tipped from being uh, smart, pressuring your rivals into maybe doing more work, into the, okay, Thibaut, you're getting, it's like too much. you got to yeah. stop. We
2: were uh, just watching him lose himself a bike race. Yeah, he, he was just, he was going he was going nuts.
0: He was just gesticulations every 30 seconds. Uh, so, yeah, I can't really say that I was rooting for him on that stage to win. In the end, Ana Rubio from Movistar uh, caught back on to Pino and Cepeda and left them behind in the finish. And he was the one who really yeah he kept his head down all day he, he kind of he he didn't really he wasn't really the target of Thibaut Pino's criticism that was Cepeda uh he had been kind of left behind and yeah he then at the very very end when it really mattered he came through and, and won the stage and I was kind of happy about it maybe Thibaut will have another opportunity some other day uh but yeah I just it was it was too much too much complaining I, is there am I,
3: am I wrong? But was he quoted after the stage saying he didn't care? He just wanted Cepeda to not win. I'm also curious. Does Vogler still do commentary for uh, France Two, France Three, whatever the French broadcaster is? Assuming they, there. I mean, I I want to know what if there is Vogler commentary. What he said about this because this was like, this was peak. You know, throwing the toys out of the pram, as they said, uh, Thomas Vogler. Uh, just the the constant gesticulations and then the, like attack for no reason other than they're upset. Uh, it, yeah. It was really something to watch. And I felt a little bad for Pino because yeah, I, I do like him. I, I enjoyed watching him, but I, he definitely crossed the line from uh, entertaining to like, all right, I, I no longer want this writer to win.
0: <laughs> uh, Pino did say that, by the way, I'm reading the story right now. He okay. That. Uh, uh, so he's living
3: his best life, man.
0: It, yeah. It's uh, all about him. And his goats. So, and Cepeda didn't win, so at least he got that out of the day. Pino yeah. got that out of the day. Uh, Rubio did. But, yeah, I, I, it was entertaining, at least. At the very least, it was, fu- it was entertaining to watch. It just made me really not want Pino to win as much as I would have normally wanted him to win. Uh, nice. Bouncing ahead to today's stage, Sunday's stage, where there was another very intriguing finale with multiple riders sharing work, not working, attacking each other. Uh, and today's stage, it was at the very front of the race— Ben Healy, Brandon McNulty, and kind of on and off again, depending on when you checked in in the final 10 kilometers, uh, that duo was or was not joined by Marco Frigo from Israel Premier Tech. Uh, and I thought it was just a masterclass from McNulty to tactically play that where he, so he, he put in a, a pretty big dig. It was sort of like an oops attack or like a, okay, fine, I'll do that attack when he did it that he'd kind of gone to the other side of the road and Healy and Frigo were together and McNulty realized he had a small gap and then he tried to push the advantage. Uh, so he, he did put in an attack. Healy chased him down and that was kind of it for McNulty putting in big attacks. And after that, he really, he sat on in a way that I thought was very intelligent. Uh, he let Healy do most of the attacking from that point on. And they did leave Frigo behind for a bit, and then Frigo rejoined them. Uh, and then in the very, very end, in the, in the finale, it was McNulty who, who was freshest. And I think that was due to him being tactically really smart. I think we generally expected Healy to have a better sprint. It was it would have been close, uh, but I think I was expecting Healy to have a faster sprint. But I think Healy was spent. He had done too much attacking. He had done too much chasing. And at the end of the day, McNulty, the, the race craft was... Um, yeah, A plus on, on that one.
2: Uh, yeah, the other thing about McNulty was he was so patient and he, he was quoted after the stages saying that he knew that Frigo was coming back. Um, so he sat on Healy's wheel in the finishing straight, knew that Frigo was desperately clawing his way back to the front and then used Frigo's momentum, McNulty did, to launch his sprint in a slipstream to then obviously take the win. And so it, it was it was confident, it was patient it was strong um and uh yeah that uh, you don't often you know that's that's something that's a story that you get in the third time that somebody's tried to win a grand tour stage yes and this was his this was his first attempt i don't know well it's i know it's his first grand tour win but it's but it's but it's first grand tour stage win but it's it also feels like this was a guy who's who's been here for several years doing that sort of effort but it it just felt really uh, I don't know, smart. Um, and yeah, like he's been watching racing as well as racing, racing.
3: (laughs) I I thought they, all three of them rode really pretty well tactically. I I think Healy kind of knows that he isn't the best sprinter around. Uh, We saw him in, oh gosh, what was it? One of the, one of the earlier kind of semi classics as people say, though I hate that term where he just, you know, he was, he was riding hard. He was trying to get rid of everybody. He got rid of all, but one person and was like, well, I'm going to lose this sprint now. Um, but he's it, it he you know he put in a really good attack he, he kind of waited to the very top of the last big climb while everyone else had kind of done some stuff and he opened up a gap and McNulty had to work pretty hard worked really smart to bring it back but like it took him a while to get back on terms and then again when they had the kind of uh, the, the final climb into the the old the old uh, Bergamo town center, Uh, Healy was very kind of like past the obvious attack points and put in a big, a big dig that finally distanced uh, Frigo. And I thought Frigo did a great job coming back. Like, you know, he definitely, he, he, I I think there was going to be a little bit of, tactical considerations between Healy and McNulty in the finish. So I think he could be pretty confident he would come back, but really came off the wheels of the camera motos that were were there. They weren't really pacing him. They just, they happened to be at the end of the race. They hadn't diverted yet. Came up with a good head of speed and like carried the lead, I think into the final 200 meters. It was, it was pretty close. And and when Healy went, you know, he got, he got, he didn't make it easy for McNulty. He got up into his space a little bit. They, I don't think they've quite bumped but, you know, there was enough that, you know, if, if if McNulty wasn't quite paying attention or tapped the brakes, like, he still could have taken the stage. So, yeah, it was a really cool finish. It was great. I would love to see it in, you know, actual Lombardy instead of the Lombardy version of the Giro d'Italia. But we've officially passed that talking point, so I will not delve in any further. I mean, hey,
0: we, we, we may get that in a few months. So, you know, who could happen. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's a good point. Everybody did seem to have... Pretty good tactics today. I mean, McNulty was the one who won, but I don't think you could really heavily criticize anyone for for you know this or that mistake. I felt like everybody did did what they could have, and in the end, I think McNulty just did it better.
2: Yeah, and it's very easy to look at the profile and think, okay, so there are obvious places to try and attack, and particularly as we've seen what Ben Healy did on stage eight, um, you know, attack really early on a climb, uses strength to just go, um, but he, I mean. I don't think he was expecting to go and stay away when he attacked on the flat between the last two classified climbs, but he was really starting to get the racing going. Um, and I think what we've learned when he's in his interviews, he's, he's a very smart racer as well. And he's not, you know, he, he he's, um, he's obviously quite new to the world tour, but he's got a very mature head on his shoulders and, uh, it's, um, it, it shows, I think in his racing.
3: Abby is smiling.
2: Yeah, I, was, I got distracted, I <laughs> we started laughing.
1: <laughs> I was just looking into Derek G. <laughs> he's a birdwatcher. <laughs> he's a birder? Yeah. He really loves birding?
2: <laughs> I wondered.
1: <laughs> what a character.
2: Is Sorry. birding what the Americans oh. call bird watching, Or is that That's just... Yes. Maybe. Okay, because it's just bird watching here. I feel it's, like you hear both I'm here. I'm not sure.
1: Speaking of breakaways, I find it super interesting that they've given away the pink jersey not once but twice in this Giro. I think it's something you see pretty uh, pretty frequently when there's a time trial that kind of is dominated by the potential GC favorites of the race overall. Um, who takes the, the lead maybe too early in the race for the team to be able to defend it all the way through or they just don't want to. So it's pretty common we see the the leader's jersey Handed over temporarily to uh, someone who's not in the GC conversation in the first week, but in the second week, that is not something we see. And the breakaway on stage 14 with um, the Frenchman, Bruno emeral he, um, he, uh, so the, he's like, the face he made on the podium was amazing. <laughs> he was just like, <laughs> How did this happen? And he, he defended it on, on the stage on Sunday. So it's just like so hilarious.
2: Yeah, who expected the pink jersey to be chasing back on his own at the beginning of stage 15 of the Giro d'Italia?
1: <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Surprise.
3: So I kind of all along the same lines or similar lines, I think that um, all these riders who've really been animating the this second week, the, the Derek G's, the the Tom Squinches, the it, all these guys. Healy. I think they need to bring back the inter Giro so they have a competition to contest. Um, they may need to mod so forever, from oh, nineteen eighty nine to two thousand five, six, somewhere in there, uh, there was a like mini Giro within the Giro where there was a intermediate finish line and a separate set of intermediate sprints, and they basically just stopped the G C at for the inter GC, that is, at these finish lines. So you had a lot of breakaway specialists who weren't necessarily good at climbing or, or sprinting kind of fighting for this Giro within a Giro. They didn't even bother trying to explain it when they um, had the the Giro on uh, American cable TV during the, the the very peak of the Lance bubble. They're like, and there's the inter but it's too confusing, so we won't talk about it. Uh, but I think it actually gave a good kind of mini gc for riders who are really animating the race to to kind of hold and trade off and fight for and it, it, you get you know the prestige of standing up on the podium at the end of every stage and it's you know it's kind of cool yeah it's a little confusing but at the same time like i think it would be really fun if if Derek g had a cool inter oh, jersey to wear or any of the other people who are like you know, battling, and they could get in the break, but they weren't necessarily going to be able to challenge for the stage win. They could try to take that jersey off him. Like it, it I, I feel like that sort of battle would really do a lot to sort of assuage my concerns about the the overall GC that we're seeing here. Um, and you know, the Giro has a ton of weird intermediate prizes already, but I don't think any of them get a Giro, uh, get a jersey. Uh, I'm also kind of not a huge fan of young rider classifications because the. It's been a while since the, a young rider was meaningfully not contesting GC, um, although we have that now. So, um, yeah, I, I love the inter Hero. They should totally bring it back and um, be awesome.
2: It wouldn't be unique in the modern calendar either because I'm pretty sure the UAE Tour or the Saudi Tour has a black jersey for the um, intermediate sprints classification, which, of course, is basically a breakaway classification. So, that yeah, I I could I, I would be well up for that. I would sign the petition.
0: All right, Malraux. I'm sure Mauro, then he listens to this podcast. I'm certain of it. And uh, maybe he'll take that into account. Bring back the intergiro. All right, before we close things out with what's up ahead and the GC battle to come, a quick note on some news that may or may not be coming. Uh, News that by the time you listen to this, you will know what the news is. But as of Sunday afternoon, all we know is the, the scuttlebutt on the social media is that Mark Cavendish is going to announce his retirement. But we don't, really, we don't know for certain whether that's going to happen yet, so we can't talk too much about it. Uh, he has announced a press conference. There's a report that it's happening. That's kind of all we know for now, so just, you know, stay tuned for other podcasts like The Placeholders or go over to escapecollective.com and read about it because if Mark Cavanaugh announces his retirement, then there's got to be a story up on that website written by well, I don't know, Johnny, Kaylee, Kit, myself, one of us, we'll, we'll, we'll be doing that story. So, stay tuned for that news, we just don't have it yet.
2: I think, well, when I first saw the news this morning, I, there was a f- part of me that thought, is this a loss in translation, he's leaving on the rest day? Um, to go and prepare for the Tour de France, where he's going to get his 35th stage win, if he wants, well, if he can get a bit better at sprinting. Um. So, I no, I think he's th- 10.38 today, happy birthday, Mark Cavendish, but so it would make sense, and he's on a one-year contract. So I think there's a very good chance we are going to see him announce his retirement. Also, you wouldn't announce a press conference if you were just going to leave the Giro. So I think the news is what it says it is. But yeah, I don't know.
3: I mean, is this is this coming as a surprise? I I feel like everybody was on the same page during Cav Watch this spring. Like he's got a he basically signed to Astana to win one Tour de France stage and then retire, and we all know this. Does does it need a rest day press conference like?
0: I don't, I don't know. know. I felt like I knew under. I felt like I knew Alejandro Valverde was going to retire five years ago, and he didn't.
3: Yeah. Uh, he didn't okay. Like but ago. but there wasn't a big like Alejandro Valverde like no one no one got mysteriously fired for no apparent reason so that Valverde could come over to their team, right? He was this this was very much a like mm-hmm. let's get Cav into a spot where he can win this magical stage and shake hands with Eddie Merckx and et cetera. Um, I don't know. I felt. I feel. I, when I first read it, I was like, he's retiring now. Like, he's decided he's not good enough to win the, the final stage, th- this, the, this uh, record-setting Tour de France stage. Um, but no, I, we'll see what happens at the press conference. I just think it's like, yeah, we know.
2: Yeah, I, my slight journalistic gripe is just, why announce it at, that you're having a press conference that it's probably going to be this? And we have to wait 24 hours to announce the news that we already know. Build
0: that hype, Kit. You got to get as many people, you got to draw them in. You know, yeah,
2: but the headline is Mark Cavendish may be about to announce his retirement. He's 38 years old. Yeah, that's, that's it.
0: That's two, that's two stories he gets out of it, though. So, yeah.
2: Well, yeah, I suppose.
0: <laughs> All right, let's talk about the week to come before we close things out, because there's a lot of action we hope to come. I'll preface this, we hope, with a, with a reference real quick to a story that El Pais ran the Spanish newspaper today, which I just really love the, uh, the... They didn't hold back. They did not hold back. A very fourth I sent the. I sent the headline to Cosmo. A very uh, direct commentary on uh, what the author Carlos Arribas thought of you know the race so far. So uh, translating here from the from the Spanish, but basically the tweet essentially said of today's stage uh, where McNulty won, that McNulty won uh, a stage in a Giro quote in which the favorites remain paralyzed by fear, uh, and then it went on to say that. Uh, Basically, today the the attacks off the front were the thing that were saving us from quote another day of laziness is one way to translate this word <laughs> from Thomas Ruglich and company. So, man, uh, uh, El Pais, Spanish newspaper, which uh, does a, a good job of covering the bike racing, usually a very very strong opinions from from uh, from Carlos Arribas. He's
1: not wrong though. He isn't. I wrong. mean, I think the GC riders are paralyzed by fear of the third. Yeah, meeting, but laziness. So I mean, that's wet. strong. Yeah. That, yeah, that is...
0: Paralyzed by fear is one thing, but uh, to, to say that they are paralyzed by desidia, which is like idleness, laziness? Yeah, I, oof, I don't know. But we do have a big third week coming up, so hopefully they will awake from their slumber and rise to the occasion to entertain us because that's what we want. We want them to entertain us uh, in, this, in this final week. We did have weather of impact already, what might have been a big mountain stage to Crans montana in switzerland there's a there's a chance that could happen again i mean we we gotta we gotta say that the weather could impact the rest of the race it's may it's italy it has been snowing a lot uh but as we come out of the rest day oh, immediately they're going to have an opportunity for some gc action uh on a stage to monte Bondone, which ends with a first category climb that is very long uh, to monte bandone and uh, that May give us an opportunity to see some action. We'll see. Uh, And then Stage 18, another big opportunity for some action. Uh, That one is going to take riders higher into the mountains, although not so much of a hard, hard finishing climb, because Stage 19 is really the uh, non-time trial GC finale, if you will. They're going to finish at Trechime de Lavaredo, and that final climb, very steep. And as if that wasn't enough for you, the stage 20 mountain time trial to Monte Lusari is going to give us one last opportunity. As hill climb TTs go, this one is extremely steep. There is a very long stretch in the double digits on that uh, stage 20 TT hill climb finish. So three to four potential big GC days, we hope. Hopefully weather will not intervene. Hopefully the climbs will be enough to inspire the riders, the Garen Thomases and the Primoz Rogoches and maybe the Joao Almeidas to wake up and go for it before the race ends in Rome with the potential sprint stage. So before we finally close things out, uh, I did want to kind of just have one last conversation about maybe what it is that each of these riders can do, how they can kind of rely on each of their skill sets to outrace the others. Because the, the gaps are so small right now that it's really anyone's guess how things play out i think it's 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 pretty clearly roglitch and thomas are the two favorites and then almeida with you know maybe lectison who knows uh that's what it seems like at the moment and for me i i think it's sort of a, a question of the the NLS grenadiers team strength because they have so many riders lurking around in around the top 10 that they could potentially really use that i don't know that they will that might be too exciting for them i hope they will uh versus Primoz Roglic who I think he's a, he can use his descending skills on some of these days. That, that to me, is really where he stands out a little bit. Because, uh, you know, on the climbs and the time trials, I would think that at his best, he and Thomas are pretty closely matched. I don't know. Thoughts?
2: I think um, we're definitely going to, obviously, uh, well, I think it's obvious. We're going to see the pink jersey change hands on Tuesday. So, yes, we're going to have some GC action, because I think this at this point they are going to want to take the pink jersey and be able to look after it rather than try and chase it but i don't think anything's going to happen until that last climb i think the big day is going to be friday um which is mostly at altitudes and you know even when they come down it doesn't they don't come down that far um they're up over 1200 meters for most of the day um and um but yeah i mean i still I, i with thomas and roglic we haven't seen much i mean we've seen them match each other but only in the space of a few kilometers so we actually don't really know how they map how they uh, you know how they balance each other out um and I think Joao Almeida is probably you know he's only 20 seconds behind Roglic 22 seconds behind Thomas I think he should be considered as one of a top three as he kind of is um but I would not be at all surprised if it comes down to a hill climb on Saturday you know, if they they watch each other and um, struggle to make an impact on Friday, um, and then we just get some big action on the penultimate day.
0: The hope being, I think, that they, at at best, they struggle and not watch. Yeah, yeah, each other. no,
2: I want, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, I want to they, see them struggle. struggle. I don't want to see them watch. Each other. Some some huge action from like the first climb of the day on Friday, and it's they kind of crawl across the finish line, right. and they're still spaced out by fifteen seconds for the final day for the penultimate day time trial. Um, and we get it that way and, uh, you know, they, they are just on their knees. I want that. I want that element of attrition that we've had for the past two weeks to continue. Um, and for us to have small gaps because they've raced, not because they have defended.
3: I'm really intrigued with how well Thomas and, and Roglic match up on, on paper. Um, you know, like I mentioned it last week, but when Thomas was winning towards De France, he was winning them with big efforts inside the final kilometers, which is how Roglish has really ridden in a lot of the one-week stage races. They both time trial really well. And they, I feel like maybe it's in my head, but I I feel like I've seen them kind of looking at each other a little bit in some of these finishes where the, the, the headwinds have kind of kept the attacks down. Just kind of, you know, staring and you know, looking back, making sure they're not doing too much work, but they're not... You know, no one else is trying to do something else. And I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity for Almeida in there. Just that, that kind of staring contest. He can be aggressive. He can, he can uh, take chances and, and find seconds where those two are too busy worried about each other.
0: Yeah, to me, that's exactly his best chance is, is to do that. And we've seen that happen a lot in one-day races. That, that happens all the time in one-day races. It doesn't happen as often in GC races, but it would be really cool to see Almeida maybe at least give something a go, maybe as those two are watching each other, and we'll find out.
2: Hopefully Roglic will have learned from when Carapaz won the Giro a few years ago. But who knows?
0: So it's all to play for. Into the third week of the Giro d'Italia. Hope we're entertained. Hopefully they'll ride in a way that makes Cosmo less likely to be unhappy and less likely <laughs> to pine for the days of the Inter-Giro. We'll see. We'll have to find out.
3: There's you could pine for the days of the Intergiro even in a, a tightly a tightly contested. That's a good G-Z. yeah
0: good point. We can have a we can. It's have called it the we Intergiro.
3: It it's such a cool name.
0: Yeah. All right. So we've got that to look forward to. Lots of racing to come here in the final week of the Giro d'Italia. In between now and the next time we see you, we will have an opportunity to listen to. We'll talk with Abby, of course. I hope. Right, Abby. I yes? don't know who
1: else would do it. <laughs> <laughs> Myself and Matt Deneef and Gracie Elvin will gather together to discuss more of Burgos and also do a preview of Ride London, which is this weekend. It's Um, going past my parents' front door. Goes right by Kit's parents' front door. Mm -hmm. In Uh, historic... And there's no SD Works.
0: Uh, Essex. Okay, so we've got Wheel Talk to look forward to. We've got Geek Warning to look forward to. And there will be a Placeholders, as usual, before we are back next week to talk about what happened in the final week of the Giro. Maybe talk about whether Mark Cavendish is retiring. We'll find out. Uh, Talk about Ride London. Lots to look forward to this week. I hope you have a chance to watch the bike racing, and I'm just thrilled that you listened to us today. Thanks for joining us on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast, and as ever, thanks, Cosmo. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Kit. Great to talk to you all, and we'll see you again for another episode. Until then, bye.